Welcome to the Ego Education Podcast, an ongoing conversation about English education in Canada and Japan. Hi, Anesh. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Great. Happy New Year, John. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year, gentlemen. And to kick it off, I'm number one, I'm grateful for you both. It's been an amazing year. We've had some amazing guests, uh, including today. I'm really excited to meet our guest, Sachi. But before that, I'd like to quickly ask you guys, what are you most excited about for 2022? Wow, that's such a good question, Anesh. You know, I, I think... The what I'm most excited about for 2022 are the the possibilities that are opening up um, because of a collaboration, not with just just with you guys, which has been fantastic. It's it's been greater than I could even imagine. But just all of the other wonderful people I've been able to meet on LinkedIn and uh, the past guests we've had, just just the possibilities of of working together and, and what can come from that. That's what's really exciting to me. Uh, how about you, Paul? What are you most excited about for 2022? Uh, yeah. yeah, I. Along the same lines, John, and I really appreciate that post you put up before uh, Christmas saying something to that effect. I'm grateful for having met you guys and worked together with you guys last year and ultimately getting the chance to meet in person for the first time in Toronto. That yes. was fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I'm very grateful for the, the, the partnerships and collaborations of the last year, two years. Anish and I have been meeting for over a year now. Um, and looking forward... Uh, I'm looking forward to more collaborations, more of this, and also uh, focusing a little bit more on some really specific um, projects and goals that I want to work on this year, developing an online course. That's, uh, that's been a long time coming. Um, and, uh, you know, meeting more amazing people on our podcast. It's been very exciting to meet people um, tangential to and also within our uh, immediate sphere of 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 influence and, and contact it's been really really cool um yeah i don't know lots to look forward to number one though i i want to feel better because i've had covid for the last week yeah uh, which uh hmm, hasn't been pleasant um and speaking of gratitude i'm grateful that i made the uh choice to get vaccinated uh, as soon as i could last year and Despite yeah. that, I was pretty ill last week and still feel kind of crappy uh, this week. But um, get through that, feeling a little bit more invincible as a result and uh, move into 2022. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, awesome. As for me, I'm like you guys, I've spent I spent 2021 really just reaching out, connecting with people as I <laughs> love doing, which is how we all even <laughs> came together, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, really achieved so much in 2021 i feel with you know the the award and the book and you know meeting some epic educators from around the world i've been on i don't know tons of podcasts just getting out there and um this year like like paul i'm really excited about developing some of these online courses right and i know i'm the big biggest component of proponent of just getting out and using that but so many people can't travel right now. Yep. So, you know, some That's of these online courses mm -hmm. that I'm like, well, so I, I've developed a, or am in development of two courses right now. That's going to help learners get that mindset, growth mindset before even studying abroad, before even nice. setting foot into the country. Mm -hmm. And the other one is 
helping other educators make their city, their classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm very excited about that. Um, and really just doubling down and all that and keep making more connections and developing this huge community of educators and, um, you know, talking about that new paradigm of education. So that being said, John, you want to introduce our guest? Yes, absolutely. So our guest today is Catherine Sachi Kikuchi. She's a bilingual, bicultural translator and language teacher turned business owner of Kokoro Communications, where she supports the personal and professional growth of adults through language and cultural understanding in the form of Japanese and English language courses and coaching, as well as translation services. So... Without further ado, let's bring her on. Thanks so much for having me today. It's so lovely to be here with the three of you. Yes. Well, thanks, thanks for, for coming on. So firstly, really do you prefer us calling you Sachi or Catherine? Or do you, as with native English speakers, you say Catherine or with Dutch Demui or uh, what do yeah. you feel most comfortable with? So I'll, I'll answer your question with a little bit of a background story about myself as well Yay. added in. I have two siblings mm. and all three of us have a first name that is English and a second name or middle name that is Japanese. With my siblings, they use their English name with English speakers and their Japanese name with their Japanese speakers. I am the only one who, apart from, you know, crossing borders or doing very official things, I am the only one that requests to be called by my Japanese name, Sachi, under almost all circumstances. Love it. So, all right. Yes, actually it is. Onegaishimasu. Nice. All right. Good. Now that we've got all that sorted out as well. Very important. So, so I guess, uh, yeah, you have, of course, a very interesting background, which we've already mentioned as well. So since you, you grew up in a in a uh, you know biracial bicultural environment, um, which is is very I, I I don't know I personally find it interesting because my wife is in, comes from a similar background as well, more specifically Spanish and, and Japanese. But uh, one thing that I'm always curious about is well how how equally when you were growing up how equally were were Japanese and English used in your home. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I get asked it um, fairly often, I think. Um, within my home, my parents had the one parent, one language rule. So we used English almost exclusively with my mother um, because my mother's parents lived in Ecuador for, I think, 10 years or something like that. She would sometimes mix in a little bit of Spanish and my parents lived in Japan for two years after they got married. So my mom would mix in a little bit of non-English languages, but for the most part, it was English with her and then exclusively Japanese with my father. Uh, but in the case of Japanese, because my father is from Iwate, um, he would also mix in his local dialects. So my siblings and I I were exposed to some of that as well growing up. Uh, that's the speaking component. Um, in terms of, you know, media and things like that, we were not allowed to watch any English TV growing up. So uh, my siblings and I, we would sometimes watch Japanese children's shows that our family in Japan had recorded on VHS and then sent to us. So we were exposed to that more than anything. All right. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. So, wow. I, Iwate, I, I 
I could be wrong, but I'm I'm thinking is that where that one oh what was that what was the uh there there was a very famous Asadora um ah, NHK. Um the uh, is it Amachan. Amachan, yes. yeah. Amachan. Yeah. So it was like jie, 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 would like showing the excited would yeah. he actually so, do that? No. So, okay. <laughs> The, um, so, no, 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 not at all. So, Amachan was filmed in Kuji City, which is the like north, north end of Ibate, closer to Aomori. Whereas my father okay. is from the Osu area, which is like south central. So, the uh, dialects are different. Okay. Um, I don't, I must admit, I think they use like a similar phrase to jjj, but I think the pronunciation is a little bit different for, for okay. the local people. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> just, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> is Sorry. it like a, is it like hontoni, homani, what's a JJJ? It's kind of is like it? that. Yeah. So JJJ was um, the sort of catchphrase, I guess, of the main character in this uh, Asadora that was on NHK maybe uh, eight years ago or something. I think maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. Something like that. Um, and it was, she used it to express like surprise. Like, no uh, way, or a honto, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that kind of, does everybody know that? Is that something like everyone knows? Is like only people in Iwate or people there know it? Like, if, if someone's like from Saitama, I'm like, ah, Dasai. I'm like, ah, and everybody knows that. Or is it like a... I think I think at the time and maybe just after this Asadora was on TV in Japan, probably most of the country knew it. But if you asked anyone now, even right. within parts of Iwate, I, I doubt, although I could be wrong, I doubt most people okay. would, you know, recognize mm -hmm. it. They might understand the meaning based on the context, though. Got it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I had to ask. I had no, to ask no, once I heard all. Iwate. It's just like, yeah, yeah. oh, I remember it that. It is Iwate. It is Iwate. That's <laughs> correct, though. And nice. I love that part of your passion for just continually sharing and, and teaching Japanese is your grandmother and connecting with her. I read that on your, your About Me page. And I, I love that story because we always think of language with purpose, right? Like I've never had any reason to really learn Japanese, so I don't actually speak it. But I love connecting with culture. I love cultural components of the language and stuff. But I've just never needed to really use the language but now that my partner is japanese of six years i'm like oh i've got to meet her family in guma and I, oh my goodness i better start learning some what well, what i call focus sentences that i can use with the you know the family and, and the grandparents so yeah for sure um, it's it's so important you know for learners to have that motivation to keep going and and be focused and have that positive attitude mm. Yeah, English or language with purpose, right? It makes a huge yeah. difference. It makes a very, very All big difference. difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so speaking of, obviously, since we're talking about English education, is at least that's our focus here. Um, now, of course, now you're, you're teaching Japanese and have been doing that for some time. But in the beginning of your journey, you were an English teacher. So I'm kind of curious um, how, sp what specifically your journey was like in becoming an English teacher in, in Japan. I mean, obviously there's the cultural connection, quite obvious, but I'd still like to hear more. Mm -hmm. We'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, 
there's there's a bit of a story, I guess, behind the whole thing. I think I was probably in middle school. So between 13 and 15 years old when I decided that um, I really wanted to live in Japan and I wanted to go when I was in high school. I wanted to go on an exchange when I was in university. Unfortunately, none of that happened. By the time I finished my master's at York University here in Toronto, I was sick and tired of being in Toronto and I was ready to leave Canada. And I was like, I'm not staying here any longer. I am going to Japan. Um, And at the time, even though I really, really, really did not enjoy talking in front of people, I realized that the easiest way for me to find a job in Japan was to be an English teacher. So while I finished up my master's degree, I also went to Seneca College, also located in Toronto, um, and completed a TESOL certificate at the same time. And then I decided to move to Sendai in Miyagi Prefecture in the Tohoku region of Japan, where I taught um, Kaiwa for nine months and then got out of there and ended up teaching at Tohoku University for about three years. Um, so that was the, I guess, main reason why I ended up going there. Um, but my mother actually has been an ESL teacher for, I guess, most of my life and then a few more years. So it was always on my radar as, uh, as an option because it was my mother's profession. And funnily enough, my father uh, at one point taught Japanese, but he's also been a translator for my lifetime plus a few more years. So I ended up doing all of the careers of my parents. I was just going to say right. that. I'm like, wait a minute, there's a common theme here. What's going yeah. on? Um, linguistics and translation and all that. Oh, wow. And I'm something that just jumped into my head right away. And the fact that you taught at a university and the whole idea of this podcast is talking about the education system. Like, and you were kind of thrown, I don't know if you're thrown into it, but you were in the midst of it. It's like, okay, like how much creativity did you have? Or you're like, you're just following curriculum and you're like, oh, this is not helping them at all communicate and effectively use the language. And I can't imagine if it was like, pulling teeth for you doing that and then you probably end up ended up using it as a like this is exactly how not to teach a language <laughs> and then developing your own system and way and methodology that I'm really excited about getting into um, so just can you take us through that and like what you learned from that because part of what this entire podcast is about is like how do we shake up and change the industry and how language is learned and how it's acquired and even just that that spoken component um is there a question in there i think there are a few different questions in there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so I guess to answer the uh, rigidity and frustrations of English language education in Japan, I noticed that significantly more so in the Eikaiwa that I was teaching at. Um, and because I found that incredibly um, restricting, constricting um, for both myself and my students, um, that was one of the reasons why I decided to leave it as quickly as I could. So I the contract was for a year, unfortunately, or... Fortunately for me, I guess, I broke that contract and left less than a year um, after being there. And um, I moved 
to Tohoku University, but within Tohoku University, there is um, IDAC, which is the Institute for Development, Aging, and Cancer, where uh, Ryuta Kawashima is a head of one of multiple labs that all revolve around um, like medical research and things like that, anti-aging and cancer and organ transplant and that kind of thing. Um, and I was basically the English monkey or um, the, I don't know, everything English person for that entire area. Um, but that also meant that even though I took over from somebody who had been doing the job previously, I had complete control. So I was able to change textbooks. I was able to counsel and create classes. I was able to do whatever I wanted, have as many or as few, although there were, you know, requests from uh, my bosses to like certain things to do. So um, we did... Mm. You know, we basically had one event per month. We had one or two big annual events. Um, yeah, there there was a lot that I did there. I also coached and supported a number of researchers who were preparing to go to international conferences, and we had speech contests and things like that. Um, in terms of pulling, pulling teeth of students, I did find that um, students who first came to class, they did really struggle in terms of, you know, having that confidence or losing the fear to speak. So that's something that's really stuck with me. Um, and I, I do my best. I don't have to worry about it so much anymore because I basically only teach Japanese. And mm. English speakers tend not to have that same fear, at least in my personal experience, as compared to Japanese native speakers. Um, yeah. But but while I was at Tohoku University, a lot of the newer students would come in and they, I think, probably felt fairly intimidated at first because their classmates, um, you know, they weren't nearly as worried about making mistakes. They weren't as scared about, you know, not having like perfect sentences, perfect questions, perfect conversations. Um, but, you know, after a few weeks, they would sort of open up and they're like, it's okay, I'm going to do my best. It's all good. Mm -hmm. You know, I would walk around. Classes were small, so I could always just jump in and out of different conversations. And I absolutely adored that job, the, the freedom mm -hmm. and control that I had um, and the ability to work with these people who needed English for work. You know, they would be reading all of these papers written by native English speakers, they would need to write papers in English themselves. They would be expected to go to international conferences and present in English. So they really had that motivation. They had a lot of the specific vocabulary for their industry. So I was there more to help them with the everyday English part where they could, you know, put the vocabulary they knew and the, these incredibly complex and difficult concepts they knew and be able to, um, you know, have that more like daily English conversation part and just put all the pieces together. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, it speaks to obviously what the way you were running the class by, you said that all the students eventually got more comfortable with uh, communicating in English there. And, and, and as all of us know, as, as we already said, uh, Japanese tend to be more nervous about speaking in, in front of groups. So I, I'm curious about what you felt it was to how you were able to make the students, you know, come out of their shells and encourage them to speak to the point where they were quite comfortable speaking with each other. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it was a number of years ago now, so I apologize if I don't remember all of the details. Um, but we did have uh, these like 15-minute English classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. And I would have a theme every week. And for a lot of these, um, I the, the theme for each week would be... I don't remember what they were, but like little things where I would force them to ask questions and answer questions in pairs, for example, um, three days a week. And they would just be using the same vocabulary, the same sentence structure, these three different days. And it was only 15 minutes. So I could throw them into this thing. First thing, Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, I'd get them to talk as much as possible. And then they'd be gone for the day. And then they would come back um, for these other classes that you know, they may or may not have signed up for. And for those other ones, they were a little bit more structured. So we might have, you know, a textbook and we would go through the two pages in, in one hour, but through the extra time that we had, I would get them, you know, to go in pairs and practice the conversations or, you know, try switching out the words and making small changes and things like that. So a lot of focus on speaking. Right, right. Which is, yeah. of course, what's really needed, needed there. Yeah, right. sure. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I... it. I hear what you're saying and I, I get it. And even just even the 15 minutes is like, even that, like when students come here and they study for like four to six hours in an ESL school, I'm like, what are you doing? And, the, and then they meet me and like, I'm like, what did you learn today? And they're like, grammar. I'm, but what did you learn today? And they're like, <laughs> pronunciation. I go, but what did you learn? Oh, they're like, I learned um, present simple continuous and present continuous. I go, but, but what did you learn? And they're like, I don't remember. So I, I can mm -hmm. understand at least having, you know, that those shortened themed uh, sessions with students is, is impactful. And my frustration, Sachi, comes in when students get comfortable listening to us because we speak clearly, we create that safe environment. It's, but, you know, once they actually step foot in another country, it's like, and it's like they're deer in headlights. So the, none of that, con, all that comfort and confidence doesn't actually translate to once they actually get here because they go from the comforts of a classroom in Japan with a native English speaker to the comforts of a classroom in Toronto with a native English speaker who they can understand clearly because we speak in a certain way with or without idioms and all of this. So how can we, and again, going back to my, and I don't want to jump back into the question, but what can be done in Japan to maybe have some of this shift so that 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 comprehension, that comprehensible input in and that understanding, that confidence translates into real life? Yeah, um, I, I do think there is a lot in there. I feel like there are a lot of different things that different people can do, different teachers can, you know, or language coaches can support uh, through their students. One thing I have been trying to do with many of my students for quite a number of years now, no matter which language they're trying to learn, um, is that, you know, I tell them I might speak clearly, I might speak slowly, but just because you understand me doesn't mean you'll understand necessarily everyone. So in order to help prepare that, and especially, you know, in a place like Toronto or a variety of, you know, English speaking places, people have different accents. Mm -hmm. And, yes. the, you know, people might understand, for example, the kind of generic Canadian accent, but that doesn't mean they're going to understand British accents or New Zealand accents, Australian accents, all these other ones. Um, so I did my best to tell them, you know, when you're not in class, watch 
videos on YouTube, watch the news, expose yourself to different um, accents. And then I would try to give them different activities. So, you know, even if you don't understand everything, um, you know, write down what you did understand. You know, maybe they watched like Totoro in English, Totoro, my next door neighbor, and maybe they only understood like 15% of it, but they could still write, you know, in English, Satsuki and Mei are sisters. They met Totoro. They mm-hmm. had an adventure or like whatever it is. Um, so yeah, just like whatever they had. And at one point I had an activity that I tried to get my sort of mid-tier level students to do um, in relation to watching YouTube videos or listening to podcasts or all these other things. And I think it was kind of like um, a weekly or monthly summary, what they watched, how much they understood, vocabulary they picked up, potential like sentence structures they noticed, and then just a summary of what they understood. And then I would try to check that monthly. I do find though that it is difficult to actually get students to follow through with this sometimes. So it's exactly why I started what it you can only tell them so much that you can go tell them to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but unless you like throw them and put them on the street and say, okay, go. <laughs> okay, yeah, for sure. Um, but in the end, there's the inescapable uh, demand on them to just do the work. You've got yes. to practice. You've whatever the means by which you're learning and developing your skill, you've got to put in the time. And a lot of students, I think I find, even if they don't overtly say it, they they're kind of dreaming of the magic pill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a fast, I hear the word easy all the time. And I think these are just very, there's never going to, it's just never going to help us learn a language if we're focused on looking for the easy or the magic or the fast rather than learning a learning how to enjoy it learning to enjoy the process of learning talking with friends meeting with friends whether it's having classmates you enjoy being around in a boring old-fashioned class or hitting the streets of toronto with anish either way it's better than avoiding doing the work you know i'm a big proponent of student accountability and doing the work. Otherwise, no progress is possible, right? I definitely agree. I guess that's kind (laughs) of why I think I envy you a little bit because like you said, most English uh, or or foreigners learning Japanese, they already had that. Oh, I love anime. I love the culture. I love the people. I want to go there someday. There's always that already, already that intrinsic motivation for them to like, I want to learn more. Teach me more, Sachi. How do you say this? How do you say this? And you know, or as, you know, Anish, I want to get high TOEIC score. No. Mm. I need pass away course to get to college. It, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, hi. Um, so I, I kind of envy you in that regard, which is part of our job. Uh, my job is the unlearning process is such a huge part of like changing that mindset of how to even approach learning because they've been drilled and taught a certain way to learn their entire lives. It's like, Uh, pulling teeth but I yeah I did find that I I have noticed especially with people like Japanese speakers learning English is the trying to you know the the first task I sort of gave myself for all my new students was to help them unlearn that fear toward English I noticed even on the street living in Sendai people would look at me and they think oh English I can't speak English and pretend I didn't exist and then they would be really confused when I go to them speaking like normal 
companies. Right. Um, but yeah, you're, you are definitely right. I don't have to deal with that uh, for the most part with people learning Japanese. Um, on the other hand, sometimes I notice with uh, Japanese language learners is that because the, the lingua franca or, or the language that's, you know, sort of assumed to be the global language today is English, there are uh, Japanese language learners that I have noticed you know, even if they have that motivation because they like anime, because they, you know, want to mm. live in Japan someday or whatever it is, um, there there is uh, a certain amount of comfort knowing mm. that even if they can't speak perfectly, perfectly, of course, is a loaded word in this case. Um, but even if, you know, their their Japanese skills aren't perhaps what they could be, they do know that most people they interact with are going to be English language learners of some level. So there will be a certain amount of lenience. So I have noticed that um, with, with some Japanese language learners. Cool. Yeah, that's true. There is that bit of security, you know, English, English is spoken everywhere. I'm going to be able to use it. You really have to find kind of go out of your way in some ways to find a case, find people that can't understand English and can't, then that that's one way to really force yourself that you have to develop that. And it's, uh, it's actually becoming harder <laughs> as time goes on, mm. at least until maybe that whatever the next lingua franca is sometime in the future, uh, happens. But yeah, no, that's a very good point, Sachi. So speaking about, you know, talking about Japanese language learners and English language learners. So since you started out as an English teacher, uh, and then I think fairly recently you uh, speaking, you switched over to just purely Japanese. So I'd like you to, to I'd like to know more about like, what was your, what was the impetus for your, your translate, um, not translation, but uh, transition uh, from teaching English to, to teaching Japanese? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. Um, when I started off teaching, I never imagined that I would be teaching Japanese. Um, when I after I left Japan in 2016, I spent a, a few years traveling the world and kind of settling down, figuring out whether I felt comfortable staying in Toronto or if I wanted to go live somewhere else again. Um, and then what happened was one of my classmates from high school knew someone who wanted to learn Japanese. And so my classmate recommended me. <laughs> and so I ended up with this person who came to me and was like, hey, would you be comfortable teaching me Japanese? And my initial response was, no, I, like, I don't feel comfortable with this. I, I know how to teach English. I don't know how to teach Japanese. I don't know how to describe Japanese grammar. Like it's a completely different approach. I can speak Japanese. I learned it as a child because I went to Japanese school, but I learned Japanese the same way that Japanese children in Japan are taught Japanese. I, would, I learned it as a native speaker. Mm. And so none of this sort of explicit knowledge about the language like, I didn't have any of it. Um, but I was like, well, the demand is there. I might as well, you know, try with this person because I have a little bit more lenience just because of the, the connection we have. And um, I am very grateful to say that this person is still learning with me. It's been, I think, about three years now. Uh, and so at one point, well, for a few years, I was teaching both Japanese and English. 
And then uh, in October, last year, October 2021, I brought Takuya on as my teammate, who is also an English teacher. Um, and I, I think he might be chatting with the three of you at some point in the future. Um, but when he joined me as my first team member, I just kind of went, all right, I'm going to focus on teaching Japanese only. You take over all the English stuff. I have more admin things I need to do now. So, you know, go for it. And so Takuya does all of the English teaching. I do all of the Japanese teaching now, as well as translation and admin and things like that. So I hope that answers your question. And you do that at, yeah. a, at a, you have a school facility or some kind of a place? So everything is online. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Pre-COVID, my students who were in the GTA, the Greater Toronto area, we would sometimes meet in cafes or whatever. But um, I've been working from home since 2016 on the road. Uh, and when I decided to go off and do my own thing, my primary goal was be able was to be able to work and teach from anywhere. So I could, you know, be backpacking the world and still be able to work. And things are a little bit different at the moment just because of the way my business has run, you know, separate from all the COVID things happening. Um, but yes, everything is virtual. Cool. Yeah. So one thing I, since you mentioned that that transition, uh, talking about going into teaching Japanese, as you said, when you started out, oh, I don't have the, I don't know how to do this. I don't have the methodology, you know, you've, you've taken this mm -hmm. progress. So how, how easy was it for you? I assume that you basically took your experiences with English and some and applied that to your teaching of Japanese and how, how did you find that? And was there any, I mean, how did you have to adapt it somehow? Cause obviously that's not the sort of, as you said, the traditional way of teaching Japanese and how, how did that work for you? Yeah. Um, base like the, the simple answer is yes, I did take what I knew about teaching English and sort of morphed it, um, and used whatever I could to teach Japanese, um, but I did need to do a lot of studying and a lot of learning mm. along the way. So mm. the way I run my lessons is I, I rely fairly heavily on student motivation. So, you know, if my student, for example, wants to pass the JLPT, the Japanese language proficiency test level, I don't know, three in the summer or something, then we will focus on that. If they want to learn business Japanese, they want to learn cable and the different formalities of it, then we will focus on that. And so with this one particular student who I first started working with, um, he takes Japanese classes at a different school. And then I sort of help him with the additional pieces that might be missing, additional practice and things like that. So he would come to me and say, these are the things that I would like to work on. And then I would study as much as I could to try to fill in the gaps um, and then just use the methodology, as you mentioned, that I already had. So I don't think I am by any means potentially like a, a typical Japanese teacher. <laughs> Hmm. I was going to ask, given your experience doing that and now with this, uh, with Japanese and kind of figuring out, OK, well, am I, am I a teacher? Am I a coach? I'm just kind of helping everyone achieve their own respective goals and just kind of going with the flow like that, which is great because you have that flexibility and adaptability to be able to do that. Have you kind of figured out your own secret sauce 
within that? Like, what's what's Sachi's? You know, uh, what did what like what would you say your approach or your methodology or pedagogy that you follow? That's like this works, this way works, and I'm going to keep doing that. Or it's just kind of you go based on each student, or do you have like a a background of the a pedagogy that you're kind of applying to each student that really works? It's a little bit of a combination. So with each student, because they have different goals, um, there there is a fair difference, I guess, for each of them. But with my students, um, to sort of expand on what I mentioned just now in terms of relying on them and their motivation, um, I guess I take sort of a like a, a coaching role as well as a teaching role, sort of depending on what their goals are and what we're focusing on during the private lesson time we have together. Um, And what we do is we try to create, it's kind of like a self-study schedule, even though I don't want them to think about it that way. I want it, basically, we we sort of focus on that person's goals and their capacity in terms of energy and time and scheduling and things like that to say, okay, what are the different areas of language learning that you would like to improve or you feel the need to improve? Okay, how much time do you have each day? during the week to work on it? What are the things you enjoy? You know, and then we create a schedule for them that I expect them to you know, continue on their own so that even if they only meet me for one hour every week, they still have that Japanese exposure. They still you know, are writing sentences. They are noticing more vocabulary from the anime they're watching or they're helping you know, themselves improve pronunciation through, you know, singing their favorite Japanese songs, like whatever it is. Um, yeah, we tr- I try to create like as much of an immersion situation mm. as that, like as much as that person is capable of doing. Right. It's something that I guess we've touched on several times just with us three is like routine, routine, just develop some kind of routine, even if it's like one minute or five minutes every day. What's something you can do that, like you said, you enjoy doing? It's like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. What do you (laughs) enjoy doing? And a little bit of that every day. And, you know, we say routine is the mother of skill. So if you want to develop a skill, just make a good routine out of it. And then, you know, and you'll improve and you'll enjoy the process uh, at the same time. So thanks for sharing that. Sure, Absolutely. You're welcome. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, of course, as, as the three of, you know, the more you practice, the more you are, you know, immersed in whatever it is you're learning, it, it stays in the forefront of your mind and you're less likely to forget. And you're more likely to be able to improve and build on that knowledge you already have rather than, you know, restudying the same thing every time and not being mm. able to, you know, move forward into that, you know, space that they want to achieve. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. Next question, so. John. He's a question <laughs> guy. In case you haven't figured it out, Sat, you were like, John, That's right. you're on the next question. <laughs> we're, we're all out of sync now. We've been on the holidays. So, yes. All right. So, we've talked a lot about your, uh, obviously, the teaching that you've, been, that you've done and the background. But, of course, you also have the translation side that you've been doing for quite some time. So, mm-hmm. um, well, we'd like to know a little bit more about is, is working with translation. What, what are the specific challenges that you, that you run into when you're, you're translating? 
everything. Yeah, <laughs> what do you mean? What the, it's like a, that's a, that's a whole podcast on it of in it of itself. <laughs> but, yeah. well, and, and what kind of things do you translate? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question as well. Sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll start off with um, what what I do translate. Um, because I grew up with two different parents speaking two or having two different first languages. Um, translating or interpreting is something I've been doing most of my life. Uh, so for me, it's kind of second nature, but it's also something that I've really enjoyed, as I'm sure you can probably notice from my lifelong theme of just language stuff. Um, I started off translating basically anything that anybody asked me to do. So I've done quite a variety of things. Uh, but more recently, I have been focusing more on, firstly, medical things, which is sort of something that I picked up while I was at Tohoku University and have carried forward. That is not quite as, like, I don't do as much of it as I did a few years ago. But another big area that um, I really try to focus on is translating different, um, you know, documents or research work relating to the March 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disasters that happened in the Tohoku region. So I have been incredibly blessed um, to have the opportunity to work with people who still to this day are trying to research, you know, different lessons we can learn from it from a variety of areas, whether it's, you know, architectural, psychological, um, you know, like gender equity, um, you know, environmental, all these different aspects of the disaster that happened. Um, and, and also translating the personal stories of survivors. So that's mm -hmm. one that I tend to do um, usually December, January, and I'm actually in the middle of a fairly large project relating to that at the moment. Um, and then the third area is relating to koseki. So koseki or Japanese family registries. Uh, the more recent ones, of course, are all digital, but until I think it was maybe the 1980s or something, everything was handwritten. And they started in the Meiji era, I believe late 1800s, 1880s or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I do, and I, I thoroughly enjoy it, is I will translate from Japanese, often handwritten Japanese from about 100 years ago, to English, um, these, these family registries. And it's, uh, it's, it's another thing that you know, it's it's a window into somebody's very personal family history. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's a responsibility, but it's it's one that I very thoroughly enjoy and I, I feel very lucky and very blessed that people, you know, feel comfortable um, you know, sharing that that information with me and that it's a privilege for me to be able to, you know, rewrite it in a way that they can understand. So those are the, the three main areas of translation that I do. Now, in terms of some of the issues and complications, difficulties relating to translation, I'll mention, I guess, another three things. The first one is one that is maybe not so good. Um, the one big thing that I notice is the, the lack of respect for translators in general. And I, I think this is not just a Japanese English thing. I think it's probably uh, a global issue that translators often struggle with. And more often than not, I, I apologize, I don't know the exact numbers, but women tend to be translators 
more commonly than men. And so I think that that is one of multiple reasons why translators are not respected for the work and the expertise required for it. You know, as with, you know, people, if they hear that someone is a native English speaker, they might think, oh, you can teach English. It's not, doesn't always quite work that way. Um, no. And it's the same with translating. So just because somebody can speak two or more languages doesn't necessarily mean that they are or can be a good translator. It can, but it's not a direct one-to-one correlation. So that is that is one that um, I don't enjoy so much. But the other challenges that I notice through translation are things like, you know, translating different dialects, specifically from Japanese into English. Um, that can be really difficult, but it's one that I really enjoy because it's like a game. Mm. It's like a game trying to figure (laughs) out, you know, how can I represent that this person has this kind of background and is from this age group and this region in Japan, you know, from this time period. So that's one uh, very exciting challenge. And then another one, which, you know, I'm guessing the, the three of you have probably also experienced in your own lives is relating to, you know, specific phrases or concepts that exist in Mm. one language and not the other one. So this is another challenge that um, I enjoy. I mean, I can spend a lot of time thinking about it, but uh, I was, I'll jump on there quickly. No, no, it is a game. And and actually I was just going to mention a few things while it's on my head because I tend to forget. It's like, I love the translations that are done like for Teda's house, for example. I'm like, I'm actually laughing my head off because how my partner in Japanese is understanding it. And I'm like, I find it funny. But so the translations are like so on point. And I don't know, I don't know what they're saying in Japanese. I'm like, that's amazing. And it's like, it must be a game for them to figure out how to make it funny for, you know, the the North American listeners, so to speak. So I I love that. And I was trying to explain, you know, the word resiliency the other day. This in, in December, that was my thing. And one of them was like, Oh, Nana Korobi Yaoki. Yaoki. And I'm like, What? And it's like, you know, fall down seven times, get up eight. And I go, Oh, okay. But why only seven times? Why is it the eighth time? And is it because eight is a lucky number or something? Why can't I feel like a thousand times? And it's like, Is that like, is that even the best word? or expression to describe resilient like i'm trying to build autonomous and resilient global citizens how do i say that in japanese sachi is <laughs> like ah well maybe if you want to talk about resiliency you can use this expression or let's like there's so many nuances and how someone's going to really get that or trans anyway so it, it is a game it, it's fun but just my own question was how would you explain the word like I'm trying to build like a resilient global citizens in English and in Japanese? Sorry, how would you explain that? Yeah. <laughs> what could I use to help explain that? Gambate. Um, you, you can send me the invoice later. Um. Sure. <laughs> um, so one thing like this, uh, because many of my clients for translation do have a certain amount of English language knowledge or Japanese language knowledge, depending mm. on which way I go. For situations like this, I will actually often give them a list of a minimum of like two to five different words or phrases to be like, this is the nuance. This is the sort of how it sounds. This is the type of situation um, that that this word would be used in. Which one do you feel most comfortable with? Like, which one do you want? 
So, you know, for you, perhaps nanakorobiyaoki would work. Maybe, you know, something like, um, you know, using the word makenai to like not lose and using that word and perhaps, you know, changing the how how the word is shaped or you know adding it into a phrase or something might work for you so i apologize okay. i don't have no, an no, no, exact no. answer okay. but i think that you know having you know three or so words and yeah. then picking one would be good okay i'm writing down make night make night i had a very interesting experience a few years ago in a translation workshop i'm not a translator but um at the local i live in vancouver and every year there's a Japanese cultural festival called the, uh, gosh, I don't even remember, Oppenheimer Park Festival. Okay, that's um, not the Powell Street Festival, is it? That's the one it is, yeah, the oh, Powell okay. Street Festival, yeah. In the old uh, neighborhood that used to be the Japantown uh, prior to the war. And they were hosting one year uh, two of uh, Murakami Haruki's translators, Jay Rubin and mm -hmm. Ted Goosen, who I think is a professor at York University. Um, and they were going to speak about their working with Murakami-san. And they were going to have a translation workshop. And so I attended their, their, um, their uh, excuse me, their speech and their workshop. And the workshop was a fantastic thing. We had about 30 people in the room. And there were, there were uh, four translators, professionals. There was Mr. Rubin, who's translated, I think, 75% of Murakami's books into English including mm -hmm. all the, the bestsellers. Ted Goosen oh. has translated uh, some of his short stories. Those two guys, uh, there was um, a local translator from Vancouver and another one from Seattle. And each of those took a group of us into a corner, we gathered around, and we were given a piece of Japanese literature to translate into English. And it was from Soseki Natsumi. It was just a, an opening passage of... Uh, one of the novels, I can't remember, the opening paragraph. And it was fascinating because each of our groups got into it and we, we shared our views. There were some Japanese uh, native speakers, some English native speakers, some bilingual folks. And it was really fun to try to do our, it was a little bit competitive, though it wasn't a contest. But we worked on it for about an hour, a small paragraph. And then we presented them and compared them. And the differences were astonishing. Uh, because it was a piece of literature, not something um, uh, more literal, each group had sort of latched on to some characteristic of the language and focused their translation through that. For example, one was very literal in trying to get the, the narrative, the little story points, the little action sequences of the paragraph uh, articulated in English. Um, the group I was in was very focused on capturing the, 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 the essence of the figurative uh, expressions that were used and getting those into English. Another group was really focused on capturing the same emotional content. It was really amazing how different they were. Um, and then we, we, of course, asked the experts, which one do they think was closest to what they would have translated and they said we can't even imagine it's ours would have been totally different also and they said all all i think there were five of us no four four or five all of them were accurate translations acceptable mm. uh you know really really highly polished translations 
but they were all so different. So imagine um, like you're describing Sachi when you do a translation, you have to kind of also work with the, the, the person who, who's asking for it and, and finding out what characteristic is important to them. Is it the, the feeling? Is it the, the literal uh, fact involved? Like what characteristic is most important for them to, to convey? Because something will always have to be lost, right? Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was just a very insightful experience. I love activities like that. They're so much mm -hmm. fun. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Oh, yeah, it's very fun. Yeah, and it, it makes me think a little bit because, of course, as you said, in most of the cases, you have the opportunity to collaborate with um, the original author of the piece. But in in some cases where, where you don't have that luxury, um, perhaps the author's passed away some time ago or just it's not possible, how much of a, I mean, do you have a kind of a, what's the, is there a sense of, I suppose, responsibility of somehow trying to preserve the author's voice, just as, as mm. we said here, where um, you don't have that opportunity? And, and is it something that you, I guess, to what extent do you worry about that? Or, or do you just think of like the example that Paul just said, where everyone had all of these different translations and just, well, you know what, I'm just going to go with what I think is best or, or I don't know, how does that work I'm, yeah, for you? I'm curious. Question. Yeah, um, I, it is true that under most circumstances, I do have um, the ability to reach out to the author, to the original person who wrote it. And I tend to do um, more academic mm. types or like technical translations as compared to, um, uh, you know, literary translations. Right. So my literary translations tend to focus more on the stories of survivors of the mm. earthquake and tsunami. So under those types of circumstances, I, mm. I don't usually have the ability to speak with the person whose story mm. it is because there's an intermediary person, even though everybody is alive. Um, right. hmm. Under those circumstances... I mean, I, I do what I can. It, I know that no other translator would come up with the same thing that I do. But stories like this are really close to home for me, in part because my father is from Iwate and also because I chose to live in Miyagi for a few years. Um, so it's, it's hard to give an exact answer, but I do do my best to you know, be accurate with the information and the details, because a lot of that can be incredibly important to somebody's survival story, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. also including um, vocabulary and subtle nuances that perhaps Japanese native speakers wouldn't necessarily pick up on, but English native speakers might, in terms of how the person who experienced that felt in terms of like their emotional connection or lack of connection to something they saw, something they experienced, someone or some situation that helped them survive, you know, that day or that week. So it's kind of, um, it's a delicate balance between mm -hmm. figuring out, you know, what to focus on for each sentence, each paragraph, each story. 
probably draws right. a lot on your empathy, yeah. um, in a, especially in a situation like that where you're, um, it's not just a story, it's an experience of someone that's, that has devastated families and regions, uh, capturing not only the, 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 the narrative and the story of the, what happened, but how it felt to them. That must be a real uh, uh, crucial piece of that to, to maintain or to try to maintain, although it's probably an ongoing challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I, I do try. Um, yeah. and, and some people are much more emotionally attached, perhaps. Mm. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but emotionally attached to a specific, you know, something that happened, you know, that day or that week as compared to other people might describe it more matter of factly. So I yeah. think it, you know, there, there are a lot of different, um, a lot of different things at play yeah. when it comes to the recollection of, you know, some, something so big and so devastating, so life-changing. Hmm. Cool. Thank you for sharing that Sachi. And yeah, I'm just super impressed how, a lot of the from where you started to where you are now, it feels like you're you're really doing a lot of things that speak to your own core values as a human, and like you're very you're very heart centered. If, if I don't mind my saying that person, well, so I mean, Kokoro, Kokoro. That's, right? that's one of the so, reasons why I chose right. And so it's like it, it sounds like everything that you're doing now is very are built around that that heart centeredness and like you know th this this idea of having impact doing things with purpose and meaning and and make it and really just connecting with people and helping them share their voices and their stories and so thank you for all that you do it's it's really impressive well thanks yes. I, I appreciate yes. that mm. right so one thing that we sometimes ask is because we come up with all of these great questions but there might be something, is there, is there anything that you wish we'd asked you that, that you'd, you'd like to talk about? Nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, well, maybe, uh, maybe more specifically, yeah. um, I don't know, what, what, what's something else that you're, you'd like uh, our audience to know about you? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe even just projects coming up or, or, or it could be something else. Yeah. Um, there are, I guess, a few different things that I can share. So Takuya and myself are working really hard this year on a few different things. Um, we, one thing we will be focusing on is getting our YouTube channel sort of restarted. Takuya has his own YouTube channel from before. And then I created one last year for the business where he will also be in the videos. So hopefully I'll be able to get that up and going soon. I'm not sure how many audience members of this particular podcast are interested in the disaster that happened in Tohoku in 2011, but at some point, perhaps the end of this year, maybe, the translations that I am doing uh, will be published. I don't think I'm able to disclose the title of the book, so I apologize for that. It might be a little bit early. Um, but I think that, you know, even if it's something that I have not been involved with, uh, learning about different types of disasters can be incredibly helpful to learn about ourselves, our communities, how we connect with people, environmental changes that are happening, 
essentials maybe when it comes to our own values and, and what motivates us to keep going every day and keep moving forward. Um, apart from that, uh, I do have two online courses. One is called Japanese for Flight Attendants, and the second one is Japanese Phonetics 101. And this year, I will be launching both of them. So people who are learning Japanese are welcome to come check those out. And of course, because Takuya focuses on teaching English within the company, feel free to check out and keep an eye on everything he's doing. He tends to be a little bit more active on social media than me, at least at the moment, because I'm very tied up with this translation project, but I will be getting back into it shortly. All right. Cool. A lot of stuff. Very exciting. And I have All one right. final thing, just because we have you and um, you're a language person. Is there a favorite quote that you have in Japanese and in English that you would like to impart? Uh, is that right? It's the right word, John? Impart? I don't know. Uh, sure. Or share yeah, with sure. everyone um, a, fa a favorite yeah. or famous quote that you love or that you is dear to your heart. A favorite or famous quote. Um, there isn't, you know, like a, a Gandhi quote or whatever that I can think of off the top of my head, but I will share the first few lines of a song by uh, Takuro Yoshida. He is, I think, middle-aged, if not on the upper end of being middle-aged, a uh, Japanese singer who my father listened to a fair amount when he was younger. And one of his songs begins with, Asahi ga noboru kara okirun janakute, mezameru toki da kara tabi osuru. And these are the first maybe two to four lines of the song. And it's, uh, in, in English, it would be something like, um, we, you don't, you don't, or we don't wake up because the sun is rising. It's time to be, it's time to wake up to travel. And if I had a few more minutes to, to translate it, I might be able to make it sound a little bit better. But basically, you know, it's not up to the sun rising for us to get up. It's, it's up to us. Like it's our time to move forward. And that's why we get up. It's not related to the sun. I mean, the sun can help, of course, but... We don't need to rely on that. So that uh, those first few lines um, have really helped me push forward and try to be a better version of myself, especially since 2016, since leaving Japan. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I'm gonna I'm gonna need the uh, John Paul or sorry, I'm gonna need the Romanji for that because I'm not gonna be able to read it. But sure, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna... happy to send you like <laughs> the YouTube link and right. lyrics and all of that if you'd like. And is that is that first or those verses actually sung or is this kind of like that's just no it's it's all sung okay so... I I would potentially <laughs> sing them but it's probably not the best idea okay. at the moment I... Another karaoke when we when we can all get together at some yes. point we'll do a karaoke and that's the first song Sachi is gonna sing for us. Come, <laughs> <Yes>. arigato. <laughs> Looking forward to I will it. Try. I will yeah. try. <laughs> or we can right. sing Ishikawa Sayuri Uenohatsu no Yakore Shaori no Toki. That's another one that I love. I used to sing it at karaoke a fair amount. Oh really? That's a nice one. Perhaps we can do a karaoke podcast episode. There we go. Oh, come on. That sounds like a great idea. I can just, uh, what is it, Zindoko or something like that. That's oh, nice. amazing. Kiyoshi, that's about all I remember, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, cool. So, 
Sachi, thank you very much for coming on to our, to the podcast, the first one of 2022 Yay. for us. And, uh, you know, so much, so much that we covered that never expected to, and, and just hearing all of what you've been doing and, and how it's connected to you as, and I said, you know, your, your, your life's purpose and the wonderful things you're doing. It's really, uh, it's, it's amazing. So thank you so much. Thank for sharing you. that with us. And, oh, John and, uh, and Anish, thank you so much yeah. for having me. It's been, it's been really nice chatting with you. And thanks for listening to all of my stories and random anecdotes. They are fascinating. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Believe me. <laughs> it's like when my, my students are like, oh, sorry, I just got in from Japan. So I'm like, don't say sorry. Why are you sorry that you're here? Why are you apologizing <laughs> for everything? I'm like, oh, oh, they're just, that's just part of the culture. They're just, I'm like, don't apologize. I had people actually put down me, like, stop apologizing. And I was like, well, it's, <laughs> it's no ill intent. They're just naturally said. I was, no, but um, right. yeah, we, we loved having you and thank you so much. And uh, yes, thank you. Thanks so much. It was so nice being with you. <laughs> all right. So, uh, and again, of course, to all of you out there watching or listening to us, uh, thank you for coming in to hear another great episode with another fantastic guest. So if you don't know already, of course, if you're watching this on YouTube and you want to know where you can find the links for the audio version of the podcast, the links should be down below, down here for uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And am I forgetting anything else along there? Um, uh, it, it's, you can tell we've been off on holiday for a while <laughs> and, uh, and of course, all of the great projects that are coming up, uh, that, that Sachi has mentioned that, uh, National Ball have mentioned about, uh, online courses coming up, uh, some more videos from my, from myself, of course, coming up with, uh, with Talisman, some more business English coming out there, all sorts of things. There's so many things that are going on in 2022 for all of us. So keep an eye out for that. And anything else we want to say while we're wrapping up here? I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that as a, as a no. So thank you again. And keep your eyes out for our next episode coming in a couple weeks. We're going to be getting back into our rhythm. All right, so thank you for joining us. Have a good day, good night, whatever time it is, wherever you are, and see you next time. <laughs>